Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome again to the Neil Haley Show's Total Education Hour segment. And again, Dr. Stephen Gafonti knows me so well. we I guess my first year in radio, we connected and we've had a great time reconnecting again. And just tell us a little bit about last episode. We talked about specifically enough Rocket Phonics becoming an app. Now, and the Indiegogo campaign is going to be the way that we make sure that the funding is here uh, so that you can fund your dream to end, eliminate many illiterate children all over the world. So tell me specifically how that campaign's going. Uh, So far, it's been going really well. Um, We had exciting news. The president of Indiegogo... uh, solved one of our problems by assigning his own payment specialist. And uh, Sarasota's uh, Ringling College of Art and Design uh, is uh, looking into taking on our project so that once we have the app, we can uh, animate it and gamify it. So they don't do the programming, but if we have the program, they will add the animation to it. That's fantastic. And so yes, a lot of and, and for about a tenth of the cost that we originally thought. So many people uh, are excited about this and and introducing uh, if they don't have money but they have talent, they're introducing their talents and 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 spreading the word. And that's um, what's important. You get yourself out there as we've been doing and and getting the campaign going and getting the word out and that's the key component. Everything, yeah. got to touch everything. So let's talk about specifically enough how you're giving back. And I, I think this is fabulous. As I said before, uh, my daughter is a, an example of what your program works from Rocket Phonics, the game that, you know, has had great success. Now let's talk about specifically enough that once the apps develop, what's going to happen that's going to give back to the community, which is a phenomenal thing to really hurt, hurt, help that. The, the problems of poverty and reading is such a fundamental of reasons yes. why people we have poverty in this country. Yes. And, and interestingly enough, according to educational testing services, you know, the people that bring you the college boards, the illiterate don't know they're illiterate. They think they read just fine. Um, they just don't understand a lot of what's written. Right. So, so basically, what for every app that is sold, I will give an app to an inner city family. 
Um, we have connections uh, throughout the country with the inner city. And um, if anybody has suffered from the from lack of uh, literacy, it's the inner city kids. Yes. Uh, are the current kids illiterate? But oftentimes their parents and grandparents are illiterate. Mm -hmm. So you've got this multi-dimension, multi-generational problem with um, with what? With uh, uh, the parents not reading to the kids because they don't know how to read. So the kids don't think that reading is important, so they don't learn to read. And then they have kids and on and on and on. So uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but I've been tutoring uh, some uh, low-income uh, kids here in Sarasota, and they've made leaps and bounds. But more importantly, I've attracted the attention of their parents and their grandparents. So now I'm working with the grandparents, the kids, and the parents. It's, uh, I mean, it's really a wonderful way to uh, break the cycle of poverty. One mom, she's 38 years old, has never had a job. Oh and my. she's so excited to pass her GED and get a job. <laughs> See, I love this, and this is the thing I, I had as one of my goals in my career when I just had my education business till I saw I have to control the media to control the world. <laughs> and that was, then I kind of went to a media compared to just education where the radio show started, which is now TV and radio and syndication all over the world, but when I was first looking at a tutoring company, the key thing I said is all you guys are doing it all wrong. You're not providing one-on-one -on -one tutoring for every inner city kid. If you provide a program or tutoring to an inner city kid, they're going to end have the right people trained to work with them. These kids will achieve as well as their counterparts in the um, more wealthy districts. But if you punish them, treat the teachers like they're garbage and that they never can do anything, it's just going to continue this cycle of poverty. So someone like yourself that's going in to the front lines and doing it is where the success comes. Yes, and the app will act as a personal tutor. The, the ultimate app, the one that will... Here's the, the current plan. We're going to do a stripped-down version of the app. Give it to... Uh, sell it. Yes. The, the investors that this is something that people still want. Parents still want their kids to read. And that we we can uh, get people uh, from across the country to buy it. So once they see that, then they'll give us the money to not only develop it but to market it. Now I have connections across the country in the inner city. That's no problem. People who don't even believe that education would ever get them out of poverty. So. It'll be, sold, it'll be given to them as a game to keep their kid uh, occupied. And then as the kid starts to read, uh, the parents get more and more interested. So um, this Indiegogo campaign is just, a, is just the, the first step. It gives us the, um, the minimal viable product. That's what the in investors call it. Once we sell the, uh, the minimal viable product, oh, and it also gives us what's known as buzz. Yes. As you know, I'm not much of a marketer, 
But evidently, buzz is very important. Oh, it is huge. A lot of people going to our Indiegogo campaign site, uh, even if they don't buy anything, it shows that there's an interest. And, um, you know, our, uh, for everyone we sell, we'll give one away. Where the projections look like within five years, we'll have given away two million apps. That's Amen. I'm so glad to be part of this family. I'm so you glad. Know. I'm so glad we reconnected because that's one of my goals. And now I have somebody who can attain this, and Dr. Stephen Gavanti and myself uh, providing the education reach to provide for him. And so everyone needs to just go ahead. If they're watching the video on YouTube or Facebook, click on the link, donate today. Provide feedback. If you see it on social media, if you see it uh, on a radio station or you're listening to it, make sure you go to Indiegogo when you get in front of a computer and search Rocket Phonics and go ahead and donate today. We're back to the Toll Education Hour show segment, Toll Education Hour, uh, on the Total uh, Neil Neil Haley Network. And I'm just telling you, I love talking education. It's how I started in radio 10 years ago or on my 10th anniversary. But I have so many different interesting guests. But I'm excited to welcome the program author, Simone Davis. She's the author of The Montessori Toddler, A Parent's Guide to Raising a Curious and responsible human being. Simone, thanks for calling. How are you? Thanks, Neil. I'm well. How are you? Good. I'm doing awesome. And uh, I'll just give you a little bit of my background. I'm a former teacher. I have worked with kids in a variety of, and and own a tutoring consulting company. So I've worked from kids' birth all the way up to adulthood and education. So I understand specifically that learning process. And uh, Mm. it's very, very interesting, the Montessori way. And uh, that, that kind of brings either some people love it or they hate it, Simone. So when you decided to write the book... Were you concerned about that fact where there's people that are just so pro Montessori or others are just so anti? Absolutely not, because I know that Montessori is not for everybody. And so the people who are interested in, you know, this balance between setting limits with your children but giving them an enormous freedom as well, then it's going to be something that really resonates for them. And if you're more strict or you want to be completely laissez-faire in your parenting, then it might not be something for you. And that's okay because everyone um, has a different way of parenting their child. And uh, I just love helping the families that really do resonate. And it's uh, resonating a lot at the moment. I think when people are looking at a more alternative education system, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm sick of bossing and threatening my kids. How can I do this differently? How can I actually have joy in my parenting? And yeah, I love helping those families too. So tell us your background and then why, and then we'll talk about why you wrote the book. <laughs> yeah, so I came to Montessori when my children were very small. They're now 18 and 16. And I walked into a Montessori classroom and fell in love. I thought, oh, this is how education should be. Because I went to a very traditional school, put up my hand to see if it was in the test, that kind of idea. And otherwise I wouldn't even listen. And I had more you know, higher ideals for my own children. I wanted them to love learning. And I just saw that the Montessori environment was so engaging and self-directed for the children as opposed to top-down learning. The children are really, like, engaged in their own learning process. 
so after attending a Montessori playgroup with my son and then later my daughter, I moved very quickly into Montessori training and moved to Amsterdam and ended up starting my own school 10 years ago and um, have been working with parents and families ever since working with their children and the parents come to my classes. So I get to um, show the families how they can use these ideas also in their home because they're like, how come they listen in class or how come they're so engaged in this place but not at home? And we're like, can show them how they can apply the same principles at home as well. So, Simone, you said yourself, okay, I can't see everyone all over the world, so I have to write this book. I have to give what I give in consulting and working with parents one-on-one or in groups or at, in, in classrooms the same level of expertise to everyone. That's why you wrote the book, if I'm right. Yeah, I think I started reaching more and more families via a blog that I was um, that I write called the Montessori Notebook, and there's a very growing interest in Montessori at the moment. And blogging then became, you know, more and more bloggers are starting. I'm like, but what can I give? that the other people can't. I've got 15 years of experience working with Montessori families. Um, I haven't seen more than just one child. You know, a parent might write a Montessori book, but I've seen thousands of children now over these years. And I can give a very practical insight into how they can introduce the ideas at home, where Montessori books that Dr. Montessori wrote are very beautiful but not so accessible for, you know, tired parents with toddlers. And so I made a really practical, easy-to-read book but also it's really an encyclopedia. Yes. It has every question like what to do with my kid bites or what activity can I set up that's beautiful or how do I set up my home so they can be more capable. Um, so it really covers all of those different parts of the monastery approach. And that's fabulous. And I think that, you know, you definitely found something of why. And so I'm going to go with the question that like you've kind of explained things. But I want a, like a great pitch. Why Montessori? Why are you so passionate about Montessori learning? Yeah, I think it's because when I worked with toddlers and started to see the world through their eyes, I recognized, oh, they're actually not trying to make trouble for us. Like, there's such a you know, terrible rap where they get the terrible twos and they're trying to wind us up and it keeps, you know, irritating me. And actually, uh, through the monastery approach, we actually step back and see from their perspective what they're interested in. And when you look that way, you can um, see that, Maybe they're interested in the toy that another child wants, and so they take it out of their hand. So instead of thinking, you know, don't snatch that toy, you can say, oh, it looks like you want to play with that toy. How can I help you right now? And it's a very different approach. It's more a working with the child approach. And so it just to me, I'm not a really bossy person. It didn't feel right to threaten and bribe my kids to get them to cooperate. But how am I also going to, you know, kind and clear, show them I'm also going to not let you just take that toy out of their hands. So I think it's a really nice balance of, like, raising curious kids but also teaching them to be responsible because it's also about community and how we live with others. And I think that what Montessori brings to the table, and and remembering being a developmental therapist, birth to three, is the ability to let the child lead the instruction that you basically provide mm-hmm. that opportunity and let them figure out and explore their learning. I am just so mm-hmm. disappointed in public education in the United States right now with the testing because testing doesn't speak to Montessori or doesn't speak to anything involving owning your own learning. It's become such a crazy situation of just these coming up with this specific way for teachers to teach that you're losing the Montessori way in a way for teachers when they were really independent and could come up with strategies and different things. So it's really sad what's happening in education where we're forgetting the child centered learning. We're more focused on teacher led instruction. We're more focused on direction and direct 
directness instead mm-hmm. of focused learning, right? Yeah, and they're bored children. They're sitting in classrooms passively learning what the teacher needs to learn them because they need to get through the next test instead of if you – people think, oh, wow, how does that work in a monster classroom? The materials are laid out. I get that. And there's a mixed age group. Okay, so I guess the older children can help the younger children. But who would make them, you know, work if there's only one teacher to 30 children? And you have to go and observe in a monster classroom. They're so engaged. Children want to learn, but we've just sucked all the love of learning out of them. Um, and I just love as well, like, they're so engaging because because it's concrete materials, so they children actually physically take activities off the shelf. It's not worksheets, it's really practical, like this is one and you hold a little golden bead and this is ten and this is ten of the beads strung together and, you know, those very concrete ways to learn and then they can scaffold the skis and skills in a very um, logical sequence and it's also a very rich curriculum for maths and for language and for geography and world studies and we also have this um, practical life activities which is teaching children how to take responsibility for the space around them they you know the very youngest children love preparing snack in my classroom they make their own orange juice and cut the bananas and help set the table and then they learn how to clear the table and these children aren't even three years old um, but they know where the bin is where they put the skin of the um, orange once they've pressed it so yeah it's really amazing to see children wanting to learn because you think that's not how it happens in a traditional school at all and actually also for teachers I think is also another thing to mention is that it's easier for the teachers you're not trying to create new curriculums all the time it's a tried and tested curriculum and the teacher becomes the guide rather than having to top down force information into them the environment is like a second teacher and a teacher has that support so you don't get burnout as much and I think when kids are forced to learn a specific way, they feel as prisoners. And mm-hmm. I remember in my classroom, and I utilized a lot of the multifaceted learning strategies. Yes, my classroom at times was loud. Yes, it was very challenging to maintain control unless you really were on top of it. But the kids really enjoyed it. They, did, weren't, they didn't feel like they were just stuck at a table writing the whole time where the teacher wasn't even leading instruction. So, so Simone, mm-hmm. what we're seeing in, in many ways is let's keep the kids quiet. Let's keep them paper, pencil, especially when we get to about middle school. And we're not going to let them engage and learn how to learn. And it's, mm-hmm. really, it's really a sad situation. So the, and would you agree with my points I'm making? I'm not saying I'm pro-Montessori or wherever. I'm, I'm education. I'm, I'm child-centered. I believe the way kids learn by doing, they don't learn by specifically mm-hmm. sitting there and getting regurg- and have to regurgitate information. At one point, you're going to have to do that in college, but that's from developing the prior knowledge necessary to do it. Yeah, I think you, what we find is we're really trying to not just rote learn information anymore. And Google can look up any information. So this skill building is more important than ever. Raising children that can think for themselves and come up with creative solutions to the problems and make discoveries and mastery and sticking at things. So those are all the things. And also I really love that Montessori, it does um, appeal to all different learning types. So you don't just passively take in information. It's great for visual learners, great for kinesthetic learners, great for oral learners. And there's lots of movement built into activities. So children who can't sit still actually, even though it's super quiet often in a Montessori classroom, they are so engaged because they, you know, if they want to get an activity, they have to bring it to the table. 
and then they have to bring it back, and then they have to often move many different parts around the classroom. Like, there's another lovely color-matching activity. So where you say, this is green, can you go and find something else that's green in the classroom? And so they go with a friend, and they go and find something green, and then they bring it back to the mat. And then they, okay, this is orange, can you find something orange in the mat? And then they go and find something orange, and usually they come back with about 10 orange things, because they can't help themselves, but like, they, oh, this is also orange, and this is also orange, and they're so excited to discover there's so many orange things in the classroom. And so they brought them all, that you've gone through all the different colors, and then at the very end, okay, now it's time to put these back. Would you remember where this goes? And they then go and put it back. So that's so much more yes. engaging than a worksheet. It's like, this is orange. Right. That's color in because an orange. it's your job. It's your job as the teacher to assess if they're really reaching those objectives and goals and where they need to progress as, as students. It's not the job of the regurgitating information and using one specific modality to learn. You have to use C1. Yeah, go um, so, yeah, and also you don't need the testing because I'm a teacher and I can see, okay, well, yeah, they know orange and they know um, red and they know, like, the complementary colors, but they don't know yet pink and um, gray. So what I'm going to do is next time I show them that lesson, I'm really going to emphasize this is pink and this is gray. I don't need to do a test to know which one is right or wrong. I love I love the children. I love that idea. Yeah. So I'm going to be a devil's advocate now, Simone. I, I, I'm going to go in the. I, I'm wearing my education hat. I'm going to go put my entrepreneur hat on, or I'm going to put on my, uh, you know, you know, certification hat. You know, how can how do we transition from that? I think that's tremendous for early learning. And again, that's part of your title. But what about when they get mm-hmm. older? Do you think it's just that that's where you look at other countries where they don't really push kids to tests and they look and it's more exploratory learning and learning in a specific way? When do you transition that Montessori way to a certain age? So we have Montessori schools here in the Netherlands right up through high school. And so you can actually use this approach all the way through. So even children in elementary have still these very rich um, learning materials, but they move from the concrete to the abstract. So then maybe nine to 12-year-olds aren't needing, you know, the concrete materials to learn, but they can always come back if something's stumping them so they can go back and see why it works that way. Um, there's a lot of group working that's coming in those kind of age groups because they are becoming social creatures and they're wanting to, you know, solve problems together and do group research projects. And so you actually don't have six seats in Montessori classrooms. There's tables where they can work together. There's tables they can work separately. They can roll out a mat on the floor. So you have very collaborative environments as you move up through the ages. And the other thing that starts happening in these older age groups is they start to take responsibility for their planning. So in the early years when I worked, I really don't mind if a child works only in the art corner for 10 weeks straight because that's what they're needing to work on right now. And some children will just keep repeating repeating puzzles and things to do with fine motor and um, eye-hand coordination, and that's okay because I know that that's what their body needs to work on right now. But as they get older, okay, yeah, they need to start to make sure they're mastering different areas. And so they have checklists and guidelines that you can do. You can come in and start with your maths work, and you can come in and start with your language work. It doesn't matter. You can be sitting next to a friend who's working on a project. Um, but as long as that by this date, we've all done the different parts. So you're actually starting to show children how to plan as well. And there are some children who are going to need some more support. And so, again, the teacher is the guide. And I'm going to maybe sit down with you at the beginning of the day and say, okay, what are you going to work on today? And where do you want to start? And let's make a planning for you. And then gradually step myself back so that they're taking over more and more of that process themselves, as opposed to just abandoning the child and saying, that child doesn't fit in one story because they can't plan. No, I'm actually going to meet every child where they're at. And this child needs a bit more help in that. That's fabulous. And so the last point I'm making, you're saying you can continue all the way to high school to this. But what happens when there is testing? 
what happens when you have to get certifications or professional uh, credentials? How do you transition from the, 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 the exploratory learning to the mastery? Okay, so what's really fun is here in Holland, um, they have something called the CETA Tutes, which is done in the last year of the elementary, uh, to find out which kind of high school you're going to go on to. And in my children's Montessori school, they actually taught children how to do tests. So we haven't done any testing, but there's this CETA Tutes coming up. And so what you're going to need to do is that in your planning, make sure you do a one practice exam every week, um, and you'll kind of see the types of questions. If you're having trouble with certain types of questions, we'll work on how that, those kind of things work. This is how you do a test. And you literally, that's just a subject area, is how to learn to do a test. And what's brilliant is our school was next to a classical school, and once the exam had been done, it was done in about May of the year, the children then just went back to their normal work. And in the school next door, all those children had stopped because they'd finished, they'd finished their elementary. It's like, you never stop learning. Just because the exam's finished, you know, you're going to continue to be lifelong learners. But in the other school, you stop learning because you've finished your exam. Yes. Such a different approach. I I love it. I'm not, I definitely wish that in education we can kind of go back and say, let's look at each individual child, how they are able to learn, and let's teach them. And then everyone's track is going to be a different track in life. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. that's, that's what we have to look at, but we cannot be at the point where it's just looking at numbers and scores. Let's look at the individual child, be child centered, and that's what Montessori does. Where can people check out your book and purchase it and learn more about you, Simone? Where can they go? Um, so they can probably head to my website, which is themontessorinotebook.com, and they can find out all about the book there, as well as there's lots of free resources for people that they can download, and um, links to my social media as well. I hang out a lot on Instagram and share lots of Montessori tips there too. So I hope that they see people there. Well, thanks for calling, Simone. Best of luck. Congrats on uh, all the success that you're doing, bringing out that Montessori way, and best of luck and continued success. And thanks, Neil, for your conversation today. It's been really fun. I love the questions. All right. Take care. See you later. Thanks. All right. Bye. 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 You're listening to the Toll Education Hour. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Author's Corner segment. And I am just excited to welcome this guest to the program. When you talk about Donald Trump and, you know, what's going on with him and all the different things, you you kind of want to know, has he done a great job as a politician, yet you hear the tweets, you hear the different things, you hear the mainstream media. So my guest, author Victor Davis Hansen, has a really interesting case for Trump. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Victor Davis Hansen, author of The Case for Trump. Victor, thanks for calling. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. We're excited to have you on the show, and uh, and thanks again for staying up with me. Now, kind of delving into specifically enough, uh, my concern, and I'm just going to go throw this out. I have not the political knowledge that you have. I'm just an opinionated guy that definitely really focuses on our education system and different things. But when it comes to politics, I'm concerned historically if Donald Trump, President Trump, continues to burn bridges with other people that it's going to cause the Republicans to lose the House and Senate at one point in time and the presidency and everything good that he's done will just be erased. Almost like what President Barack Obama did and was erased. Am I Uh on the wrong concern? Is there going to be other people to lead by his example? Well, I think 
every president, you, you express concerns that everybody has when a president's up for re-election, that you don't want his record to be erased because he did something gratuitous or that was not necessary. So everybody's worried about Trump speaking or tweeting in a manner that turns off that key independent swing voter. He can't win with only his base, and he can't win without his base. So, but he's got to go beyond the 40%, and he did it last time by getting another 6 to 8% of independent swing voters. So that, that's what he has to appeal to. But he doesn't exist in a vacuum. And in 2016, the message was, for you swing voters, I'm not Hillary Clinton. And for whatever my sins are, they were in the private sphere. They were not in public life. And the message in 2020 is going to be the same thing, but maybe a little bit more persuasive. Whatever you think I am, I'm the only thing between you and what is turning out to be socialism. Yes. I mean, this isn't this isn't just 70 percent tax rate on the top incomes or wealth tax or abolishing student debt or Medicare for everybody. This is Maoist. I mean, this is abortion is permissible infanticide. It's tearing down the border wall, according to Beto. It's 16-year-olds can vote in California. Uh, it's let's abolish ICE. Let's uh, abolish the internal combustion engines. Let's abolish jet planes. We've never seen something like this. I mean, this was Woodstock Nation talk in the 1960s, but this is serious stuff. And that has no, every issue that I just mentioned doesn't have a 51% constituency. So are they really going to run on that against Trump and yes. go the full McGovern in 72? I don't think they are. See, and what I'm saying to you is my concern is that there is enough. If somehow they push the needle, somehow they get through and they win. Uh, my concern is that then you talked about all those things. They will happen because well, you open it, the borders. It, you're going to give illegals the ability to vote. You're going to do all these different things just so that the Democrats will have more votes. And it'll be very tough for the Republicans to come out of this. Yeah. Well, I mean, usually when an, I'm a historian, so when I wrote the book, I tried to be dispassionate. Neither Trump's a savior or a sinner. So when I look at that question, I ask myself, what does history suggest? So Donald Trump right now is starting his third year of governance. He's right polling about 42 to 45. It's about where Barack Obama and Bill Clinton were. Next, next, he lost 40 seats in the House. Clinton lost 53. Obama lost 62. He gained two seats in the Senate. Clinton lost eight. Obama lost six. Clinton destroyed Bob Dole in 1996 in that re-election effort. Mm -hmm. And Barack Obama pretty much dismantled Mitt Romney in 2012. Right. So history suggests that Trump's polls and his midterm performance are about what an incumbent does when he gets reelected. That's number one. Number two is what stops incumbents like George H.W. Bush, to take one example, or Jimmy Carter, from not getting reelected historically, or Richard Nixon from not finishing his term. There's three things. A big scandal like Watergate. Right. I don't think the Mueller investigation no, is going to find collusions. Number two, a very unpopular and optional war, something like LBJ's Vietnam War that destroyed his presidency or the Iraq War that made Bush, right. you know, very ended up very 
emasculated in the second term. And then third, an economic meltdown. And I don't see those things happening. They could, but for now. And then finally, does the president improve or does he become more enfeebled as he goes on? And the question we have to ask about Trump is, this year, the last month, two months, are his cabinet secretaries more stable or less stable? In other right. words, is he getting along better with Bolton and Pompeo than he did with Tillerson and McMaster? Or is there an Omarosa there? Is there a right. Scaramucci there? Is there a Bannon there? Is Trump not speaking as well, or is he speaking better? Is it, Are his rallies the same, better, worse? I don't see a deterioration. I think that in some ways he's developing sort of a sense of humor, self-deprecation. And then finally, and as I mentioned earlier, what's the type of opposition? Is the opposition clever and going to the center where elections are ended? Or do they go the full Barry Goldwater 1964 or the full McGovern 1972? And I think it's much more likely than ever before that the Democrats are going to go down that path. And and that's where I think so, too. But here is it's kind of almost like a mirror image of what happened in the Republican primaries when uh, President Trump was running. You have every person in the world putting their... I yeah. guess they're they're hat into the ring saying we're going to be part of this and it's going to just really rip apart every one of the candidates unless there's a pre- I, go ahead. Yeah, well, I think what's going to happen is that they're in a classical paradox because uh, they know in the abstract the way to win would be to nominate somebody like Joe Biden. And right, then get right. Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren as his running mate. But their own orthodoxy prevents them from doing that. They're now the identity politics party. They're not going to run an old white guy, even who, even if he's Bernie Sanders or, or Joe Biden. They're not going to do it. They say that they could, but the logical extension of their philosophy is they can't do it. And they'll have a they'll have a progressive walkout if they try. So that means that they're going to have either a woman or an identity politics candidate. And from what we've seen, they're not very persuasive candidates no. personally, and their their agendas are polarizing. So what they're going to have to do is, if they're going to win, then Joe, a guy like Joe Biden will be 78 years old. He's not very disciplined. He'll no. have to be better better than he has been in the past. When he's he's got to remember he's failed twice. Right, he right, had, right. With, with, he was caught plagiarizing, and once he said some ridiculous things about Barack Obama that he's a first clean black and he is the first articulant and he imploded. So you're going to have to have a better Joe Biden at 78 than he was in his fifties or sixties. And then you're going to have to have him somehow some gymnastics to get away from this, this what's going to likely be the democratic platform in Milwaukee. It's going to be pretty wild and somehow Biden's not going to be able, he's going to have to say, I'm not going to run on infanticide. I'm not going to be running on tearing down the wall. I'm not going to be running on a wealth tax. I'm not going to be running a green deal. I'm not going to be running on giving the vote to 16-year-olds. And he may be able to say that, but a lot of people who are going to run commercials will say, this is what your party was. This is what you said in a primary debate. So I think it's going to be 53, 47 odds right now. 55-45 for Trump. And I don't say it as a Trump partisan. I'm just 
looking at it analytically as a story. Right. And I'm looking at this too. And what if they would all unify the party with one candidate? I think that the Republicans lucked out with a powerful person like President Trump coming out of that craziness. I'm thinking the attacks that are going to happen when you're going to see Clinton, if Clinton runs and then you have Biden and you have you have Bernie Sanders and you have Elizabeth Warren and you have this person and that person that they're just going to attack each other to the point that Trump will be able to pick them apart in a, whoever wins that that's I think so I think if they were smart they would I mean there's so many things that can happen if, if for example if Michelle Obama were, were to run I wouldn't think she'd be effective a candidate but I'm not a democratic voter so I think that she may she could be quite an effective candidate at least from the democratic point of view and she's experienced now she's not as reckless she was in 2008 she's got barack obama it would sort of be a hillary clinton wink and nod if you vote for me you get my ex-president husband as well and so that may happen so there's a lot of wild cards that can happen i'm just saying that for right now i i assume that trump has an advantage as an incumbent it has a pretty good record to run on Okay, so let's just talk about, let's just say President Trump does win. And what you, I think if we're looking at a you know forecast right now, that's probably what's going to happen. After he finishes up his second term, can't, are you concerned that there's going to be just a backlash in this country because just of the person Trump? Not the, del, not the person who was the lawmaker that's made changes, and that's where I want to get your take is specifically without giving away the book – that ultimately you see a lot of the good things that President Trump has been able to do in the last first couple of years as president, but not as a politician, not as somebody that's able to, you know, bring sides together and unify, unify a country. What happens if that backlash comes when there's no one else as, you know, as savvy as President Trump moving forward in history after that fact with the Republican Party? Well, I think that always happens uh, with any party. When Reagan left, everybody thought the Reagan revolution was permanent. And no sooner had George H.W., his vice president, Bush, announced his candidacy. He said, I want a kinder and gentler nation. And people said, kinder and gentler than what? Ronald Reagan? That was the guy who picked (laughs) you for vice president. When Bill Clinton came out of office, uh, Al Gore said, I don't really want the guy campaigning with him. Probably cost him the election. Uh, when George H.W. left office, the first thing McCain did was run away from him. So that happens. But the better question is, Trump added some wrinkles to mostly a conservative message. 90% of Trump's message is you know, deregulation, lower taxes, energy production, more defense spending, uh, less, uh, more energy development, pipeline, the whole thing. That was pretty much strict constructionist judges, it's cultural issues, uh, clap, down, clap, uh, clap down on, you know, campus uh, abolition of free speech, for example. But he added three or four wrinkles that were specifically designed to areas that the Republicans had not been effective, and that was those Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, North Carolina voters. And the way that the Electoral College and the popular vote sync these days, 
Texas doesn't matter. California doesn't matter. New York doesn't matter. Illinois doesn't matter. They're already predetermined blue or red. It's about those 10 or 12 states. And the Republicans just had not been able to to have a message that that brought those six to eight million former, I don't know what we call them, parole voters, Reagan Democrats, back into the process. And Trump did. So after he's gone, will they, will Mar- Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz, will they say, you know what, I'm going to go into Ohio and I'm going to go into Michigan and I'm going to talk to some steel workers. I'm going to talk to some farmers. I'm going to talk to average people and I'm going to so energize them that they're going to get out and vote for me. I don't think that's going to happen because I saw it with Romney and I saw it with McCain. And I've seen that the last five of the last six elections, the Republicans haven't won 50. Um, they haven't won the popular vote and they haven't won 51 percent since George H.W. Bush did it 30 years ago. So there was something wrong there. And that's what Trump tried to address. He wanted to make a people's workers, populist, conservative, cultural party that said, you know, you got to have fair trade, not just free trade. You've got to have manufacturing, not just coding. You have to close the border, not just get cheap labor. And a lot of Republicans hated him for that. And maybe when he's gone, they won't get the message and they'll go back and, and they'll they'll lose nobly. It was also his personality. He basically said, you may not like me and I'm an SOB, but I'm not going to lose nobly like Romney and McCain and rule out Reverend Wright or not attack Candy Crawley for hijacking the second debate. I'm going to fight and I'm going to do tit for tat. And he did. And that was part of the attraction for certain base voters. They said, you know what? He's a pit bull. I'm going to cut the leash. I'm going to point him in the right direction. He's going to get he's going to ask payback for what the, the left has been doing. That was a persuasive message. I don't know if they have a person that ran against him exactly. say that, that, that would would campaign like that. It takes a lot of thick, thick skin. It takes a lot of energy. Yes. It takes a, true. It didn't it didn't affect Trump. Now, Victor, what I'm saying, let's just say your prediction and my predictions. Can we see a complete turn in this country, or do you think that at one point there'll be somebody that comes out? But do you think we're going to go really to the left after President Trump is no longer in office, meaning eight years from another five, you know, five years from now? Well, it depends on a lot of things, whether Trump is successful, if he were to close the border and make immigration legal, diverse from all over the world, meritocratic, so you'd have some skills and uh, measured, say, 500,000 rather than a million or two million, then the melting pot of, you know, assimilation, integration, intermarriage would start to reassert itself. And then if your name was Giuliani or Pelosi, you can't tell what their politics are. Just So if your name is Lopez or Martinez, we have no idea how you're going to vote. That's how America works. But when you let in 20 million people illegally, and they don't assimilate quickly, and they don't have skills, or education, or money, and no legality, then you get what we have now, ethnic identity politics. So that's why Trump is trying to close the border, so that he does, they don't keep flipping red states into blue states, like California, Nevada, exactly. and Mexico. Yeah. And that's, that'll be a big if. We'll see how that works. And then the second thing is, for a different, it's not a 90% white country, it's 70%. Right. It's still pretty overwhelmingly white. But can he 
tell African-Americans and Hispanic Americans that it was me who who got your record low on employment. It's me who doesn't like infanticide and radical abortion that, that devastates your community. It's me who is trying to close the border so your entry-level wages are, are, are competitive and that you're not undercut. It's I'm not attacking Catholics uh, in the way that Diane Feinstein or Camilla Harris have recently done. So if you can get a message where, say, 40% of the Hispanic vote, maybe 20% of the African-American vote. It's not a lot. If he gets that, he's going to win. And the Republicans will win because the Democratic Party, for good or evil, have absolutely polarized the white working class in this country. And uh, they don't vote. They do not vote. They either don't vote or they'll vote conservative, but they will not vote for a left-wing person. And uh, they're starting to alienate all of the white voters. If you look at some of the statistics, it's quite scary. It's up to 62, 63, 64 percent of all white males are not voting Democratic. And they're trying to make that up with women. And it's about 52 percent of women are voting Republican who are white women. And so now they're pandering more and more to a non-white but we got to remember, it's still only 30% of the electorate. Yes, wow. And they're very vulnerable that Trump can come in and poach minority voters. And then this isn't even talking about intermarriage and, you know, my family, your family. Every family in America is now not of one race or ethnic background. They're all intermarried. And race, if they shut the border down, race will be less essential to a person's persona, I think. As time goes on, if if Trump's successful in controlling exactly. the border. Now, Victor, your book, is it really in a lot? You said you took this as a historical point of view, an unbiased way of refuting President Trump's presidency so far. In your opinion, uh, do you feel he's a, a very good president from what we've seen so far, even though there's so many other people saying that's not the case? Well, like I said, I, I, I didn't want to meet Trump. I didn't interview him. I didn't do any inside interviews. I didn't go to Washington. I didn't hang out there. I'm just a historian that looks at the facts and the data and trends in the past. And so what I said is, how is the president evaluated? He's evaluated on, A, the economy. What does that mean? It means GDP, unemployment, energy production, inflation, interest rates, the stock market, uh, wages. They're all positive for Trump. So the next thing is foreign policy. Well, he's was getting out of the Iran deal, good or bad? Was the Paris Accord necessary or unnecessary? Was it good to move the, the embassy to Jerusalem? Is it good to address the nuclear weapons at North Korea? I think pretty much... He's restoring de deterrence, upping the defense budget. So I can understand that there's room to debate, but I think most people will either say his foreign policy is okay or it's positive. It's getting better, especially under Pompeo. Then the third thing is personality. How does he affect people when they turn on the TV? They like seeing him. Do they not like it? I think he's that was a negative, that his accent, his uh, ad hominem attacks, his brawling. It didn't appeal to too many people beyond his base of 40 people, enough that he could get elected. But has that stayed the same, diminished or 
or exacerbated. And I think that that's out. Uh, a lot of people like the idea that anything that doesn't kill Trump makes him stronger. A lot of people like his brashness. A lot of people don't. But that's a third element that I don't have the answer for yet. And as I said in the book, uh, I can talk to people in my own family and tell them just what I told you. And they will agree with me that the economy and the foreign policy is, is much better, but they won't vote for him. And that's, they don't like him. They don't like what he said. They'll say something like, well, he called Stormy Daniels horse face. Therefore, I'm not going to vote for him. Or they'll say um, he made fun of Carly Fiorina's looks. I mean, each one of those times he tweets something like that, he loses a, a few voters. And, and the aggregate, they can be decisive. But I think that's a, a, one of the three criteria that's up for, for debate. So, again, I think he's got a 52, 53, 55% chance of winning. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's the that, that's the key component for sure in uh, so many ways. And we have to, uh, you know, continue to to see what happens. So your concern, only major thing from your evaluation is looking at how he can bring the country together and become more, not as polarizing. That's probably, yeah. that's probably the one area that you're very concerned. You wish that, you know, if you could, you know, mold a Republican candidate or a presidential candidate, one that is, you talked about all those markers that you look for in success as a president, but you can't have that polarization or we could just could literally lose control and have policies that are out of control and crazy based on. Yeah. yeah. I think there has to be some issues that everybody agrees on. One is the deficit and the debt and Trump. I know there's going to be arguments about how to address it, but he's going to have to have it by, you know, sort of a Simpson Bowles commission or something and, and address that. He's already talking about a 5% cut in discretionary spending, but that would be something that would be very hard to criticism on. Criticize him when we have a $22 trillion debt. A lot of people want infrastructure and they want a gas tax because, you know, I'm, I'm not for that, but they say, you know, gas is cheap, getting cheaper and cheaper as we're the world's largest producer of oil. So therefore, let's rebuild our infrastructure by having a five cent a gallon tax and still would make gas cheap. But those are things that he might want to explore so that they're not so controversial. But with all that being said, uh, Obama took the country very hard to the left in a way that uh, even Hillary Clinton would not have done had she been elected. And it's a very polarized country. And there were things that went on the last eight years that we don't really talk about. But... Uh, and I mean that Obama, we, we forget it was take a gun to a knife fight and you didn't build that and punish your enemies and get in their face and Trevon's the kid that I never had. And all that stuff, uh, the media thought it was great, but it, it was sort of one little, one little extra burden on the camel's back for the voters. And finally, people got sick of it. And then Obama in 2008 discovered... Um, excuse me, 2016 discovered that the more that you didn't hear him and didn't see him, the more people liked the idea of Obama rather than the reality. So if you look at that last 2016 year, he just checked out, played golf, 
waved everybody, let the Democrats and Republicans in the primaries fight it out. And his his polls went from 43 to 52. And uh, But he did a lot of damage. He got caused a lot of polarization. Um, we don't we don't talk about that at all. But I mean, he did things that if Trump did, he'd be impeached right now. He he went after the AP reporters. He surveilled James Rosen. He put, weaponized the IRS. He weaponized the EPA. Uh, in the last year in office, it's pretty clear that James Comey and Andrew McCabe and John Brennan and James Clapper were actively involved in seeding this Hillary opposition research dossier among federal agencies to leak to the press to affect the election. And I, and uh, a lot of people didn't like all that. And that's where we why we got Trump. And Trump's attitude is, you know what, the left is not the left of the old days. It doesn't do any good to compromise with them because they interpret magnanimity as weakness to be exploited and not to be reciprocated. And that's, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's his attitude that you play by the Marcus of Queensbury, Mitt Romney rules, John McCain will, you lose because these guys are hardcore neo-socialists and they don't take prisoners. And a lot of people right. agreed with it. Okay, prediction. What are your predictions for, I guess, President Trump and his legacy? Well, I think he's got a good chance of being uh, what I said in the book was a tragic hero. He's sort of a shame. I grew up with Western, so I, oh, that's my frame of reference. And Greek tragedy, Antigone, Ajax, Shane, Magnificent Seven, The Searchers, Ethan Edwards, a guy that the community calls in with an unorthodox uh, methodology and unsavory background says, you know what, we're at an impasse. Our institutions are not saving us, whether from the banditos, the sod, you know, whoever it is, the cattle barons, and we need you to, to help us, the gunslinger. And then he does. And as soon as he starts to be successful, people say, wow, I feel like things are going really great, but why in the world does he talk that way? Why is he... Why is he so rude? Why is he so crass? When is he going to leave? And that that's the essence of, in literature and history, the tragic hero. So I think that Trump will probably be very successful, and he already has been. And I think people will not give him commiserate credit, and he will leave office, whether in 2020, but more likely in 2024, not as a, uh, a Reaganite, you know, Bush, elder Bush, senior statesman people be right you know they why did i vote for him god he was crude i can't believe he's i don't want him around at a funeral that kind of stuff but then they're going to privately think thank god he came because had we not had he not come we were looking at 16 years of clinton obama socialism that's sort of how i look at the whole thing all right. Well, fantastic. Uh, best place we can purchase your book and learn more about you. I tell you, it's kind of, I have not been following politics as much as you are, but I think I'm on the right track at looking at what trends are. But uh, again, let's just hope that President Trump maybe through his second uh, term continues to have uh, those results that we like, but kind of changes a little bit of his attitude the older he gets. Yeah. Let's hope yeah, that happens. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay, thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, Mar- Vic- Victor, best place we can p- purchase your book and learn more about you is Amazon uh, all over the place, right? Amazon, Borders, I mean, uh, Barnes & Nobles, Walmart, Target. I have a website, victorhanson.com. They can learn. Well, you're fabulous. We'll talk We'll talk another time, hopefully some education. I'd love to delve into what you think of our education system and stuff like that and talk. Well, thank about, you. Uh, but I appreciate you coming on. Okay, thank you. All right, take care. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.